0: I would just like to open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We celebrate the cross, which seems a strange thing to say, but yet at the same time, Lord, without the cross, we would be lost in our sins and have no salvation. We thank you and praise you for your wonderful plans of salvation, uh, which you founded or which you planned in the eternity with the Godhead. And uh, we thank you and praise you for it, Lord, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit within us that allows us to read your word and to understand it, Lord. I pray today, Lord, that as we give this message, Lord, that your Holy Spirit may just lead me and guide us, Lord, that we may have a glimpse of yourself and your amazing love to us, Lord, through the cross. Show us our sinfulness, Lord, and may your Holy Spirit uh, today, Lord, be more aware of the wonder and glory of the cross and your deep love for us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. So, what I'd like to talk about this morning is the wonder and the glory of the cross. Um, The reading I'm going to be tossing back and forward from various gospel writers about the cross today, so we won't be just staying with uh, Mark 15. But um, of all the theological concepts a person can ponder, perhaps the most amazing is the love of Jesus as demonstrated in His sacrificial death? The German academic theologian Karl Barth was asked this question during a a uh, tour, a lecture tour. He was asked this question: What is the most profound theological thought that you have ever ever pondered? And the answer came back. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So this is a renowned theologian, and that's what he came back with. I was really happy about that. And Mary said, don't sing it. So I didn't sing it. But this is the song, a little tune that I used to sing to our kids, John and Nicole, when our little baby used to put them off to sleep. Now, whether they got sick of hearing my voice they went to sleep, well, I'm not sure. But they go quite for a while while I sing this, and now I'm singing it to the grandkids. And they're kind of doing the same thing. So I'm not sure whether it's my singing that puts them to sleep or this beautiful, beautiful statement. So I reckon uh, if we asked the Apostle Paul the same question, he might reply with probably 10 or 20 verses. But I reckon in, in the top 10 would be Galatians 2.20. And we probably all know that one. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God loved me, and he gave himself for me. You may be here today wondering if Jesus really loves you. The Bible makes it absolutely clear that Jesus loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And how much does Jesus love you? We only need to look at the cross. He stretched out his hands and said, I love you this much. He gave his life to you to give you new life. So let's go to the cross. Jesus left his home in heaven, invaded this world, his arch enemy's own territory to redeem his people from their sins. Jesus Christ who was and is and ever shall be God came to this world and became a man and lived a sinless life, perfectly obeying and keeping the law of God for those who could not keep it. Then he was rejected by the very people that he came to save. Jesus came to this world to provide a way for the lost to be saved. In order for him to open up this way of salvation, he had to die. He had to be nailed to a cross and executed. The innocent, dying, the guilty. Jesus was rejected by the Jews. They accused him of blasphemy and declared that he was worthy of death. They beat him and bound him. They took him to Pontus Pilate. Pilate refused to free him and upheld the death sentence, turning Jesus over to the soldiers so that they could execute him. But I find it very interesting that Pontus did not listen to Mrs. Pilate. And what I mean by that in Mark Matthew twenty-seven nineteen. 19. They might have been having coffee at the breakfast table, I'm not sure, and Paul was reading his paper drinking his coffee, but he didn't listen to what she said. And Mrs. Pilate said these words, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, meaning Jesus, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now she would have been cranky, not getting any sleep and stuff like that, but I wonder what... Pontus thought of that. He would have heard it. Did he take any notice? I wonder whether he did or he didn't. Because on three occasions Pontus or Pilate came out and said to the Jews, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And the Jews replied, crucify him, crucify him. Now Pilate knew the right thing to do, but he was fearful of the Jews. Now, Without being too harsh on Pilate, aren't we a bit like that as well? Sometimes we know the right thing to do, but we're fearful of what the repercussions might be. We might be thinking sometimes, oh, I'd love to talk to Jesus about this guy, but oh, oh, he won't like me anymore. He might be offended by it or something like that. You know, I think we've all been through that kind of stuff. Pilate had the power, authority to release Jesus, but he didn't. Instead, he washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, which he wasn't. It's your responsibility. He's not innocent because he's got the power to release him, but he's fearful of the Jews, especially with the Passover coming. And of course, the Passover coming, they don't want riots there. He'd be in trouble with Rome. So he's fearful of all that stuff going on. So the soldiers took Jesus and they mocked him and they beat him with a scourge. Have you ever thought about the scourge? What it actually does? It is... uh, the the scourge was referred to as the pre-death death, death, a most dreadful instrument of torture. This is how it was made. It was made of leather strips, or some say it was made of um, sinews out of an oxen. And entwined in those strips were pieces of sharp bone and pieces of sharp steel. And so every time the lash struck the person's back, it would tear the flesh from the bone. That was the whole point. It would strike it, then pull it back, and it'll rip the flesh from the bone. And after 40-odd lashes, it's also exposing vital organs. So most people died through that. Jesus didn't die because it wasn't his time. Jesus was in control of his death, as we'll find out later. So can you just imagine the agony that Jesus would have been going through, just for this beating before he's crucified, and the blood that would have been flowing. Every time the lash hit his back, blood flew everywhere. Enough of that, okay. There's no little... I was was able to say that here this morning because there's no young children here. I wasn't going to go that way. And Mary said, don't you say that. But that's how bad... I'm just saying that just to get us an idea that Jesus willingly went through that for you. He went through that suffering for us today. A quote from Spurgeon, which I think is just brilliant. Believer in Jesus, can you gaze upon without tears as he stands before you, the mirror of agonising love... He is at once fair as the lily of innocence and red as the rose with the crimson of his own blood. As we feel the sure and blessed healing that his stripes have wrought us. So they led him away to a place called Calvary where they nailed him to a cross which is, as we all know, one of the cruelest instruments of torture Ever devised. So our text opens with Jesus on the cross And by this time uh, He's been on the cross three hours So they would have put him on the cross at nine o'clock in the morning Because they don't want to work in the sunshine It gets too hot So they would have out him to a cross at nine in the morning By the time we get to verse 33 here It's twelve o'clock So he's been on the cross for three hours During those first three hours He has suffered all the pain the cross could mete out During that time Jesus has been mocked by the jeering crowds For those first three hours were a time of pain, depravity and shame. During that time, humanity had its way with their creator. The God who made man out of the dust of the earth was dying for sin on a cross right before them and they had no more compassion on him than they would have for a dog run over on the road. Up to this point, Jesus has suffered greatly at the hands of men But now it's time for him to suffer at the hands of his heavenly father. As I said, by the time we come to this verse, Jesus has been on the cross for three hours. Nails have been driven through his hands and feet. The muscles of his body would be cramping from dehydration and from being forced to remain in such an unnatural position for such a long time. The spasms in his body would have caused his back, which had no skin left on it, would have been pulled off it would have been jerked back and forward against the wood, creating so much agony. A raging force would have gripped the Lord. We can only try, can't we, to imagine the agony that he endured that day as he died on the cross for us. By noon, that's three hours, okay, it's from nine to twelve, three hours our time, we're using our time here. By noon, the Lord's physical sufferings were not close to his spiritual sufferings. By the sixth hour, which is twelve o'clock, okay, He had endured inconceivable physical agony, but his spiritual sufferings were just about to commence. We are told that there was a darkness at this particular time at 12 o'clock that came over the whole land until the ninth hour, meaning 3 o'clock. So from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness, a darkness. Okay. After humanity had abused and shamed the sun, God the Father has turned the lights out. You've done this before. This was not an eclipse of the sun that would have been impossible, especially at the Passover, which was held just after a full moon. This, is what an, this is, wasn't an unnatural darkness. It was a supernatural darkness. It also appears that this darkness was not worldwide, but there was, but it was localised in Israel. So the question we need to ask ourselves, why did God cause this darkness to fall upon Israel that day that Jesus died? Maybe a couple of suggestions. It might have something to do with ancient prophecy. The prophet Amos warned of the coming judgment of God against the sinfulness of Israel. In Amos 8, 9 we read, and on that day declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Throughout the Bible, darkness is associated with the judgment of God. We read that in Exodus 10. God turned the lights out and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. Moses said it was a darkness that can be felt. No one could see anybody else or leave his place for three days, yet the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. It's amazing. Jesus said in Matthew 29, about his second coming would be announced in darkness. In those days the sun will not shine, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the heavens. It will be a day of judgment. The other, the other reason that where the darkness came might be um, to do with the curse of sin. The lost are held captive in the darkness of their sins. Jesus entered that very darkness of sin that we might be brought out of the darkness into his marvellous light one Peter two. The darkness that covered Israel lasted for three hours. At the end of that time Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Could you imagine that? My God, he's not saying my father. It's interesting that he doesn't say my father. He says my God, meaning Eli, which is the God's name for power, for judgment and strength and more mightiness. So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And no answer comes. Maybe the very silence is the answer. As the Father turns his face away, because he can't look on sin. To understand why Jesus made that terrible cry, we need to understand what was happening during those three hours of darkness. While Jesus hung on the cross that day, the sins of all those who would be saved were transferred to Jesus Christ. As Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. While the darkness covered the nation of Israel that day, the blessed Lord of glory was plunged into the greatest darkness that he had ever known. The holy, sinless Lamb of God literally became sin on the cross. Peter would put it this way in 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and by his wounds which were many you have been healed. Consider what this means. It means that every lie that we tell, every murder, every act of revenge, every aborted baby, every word of blasphemy, every evil deed committed by those who will ever be redeemed by his blood was placed upon Christ. It means that all the pride, all the hatred, all the sexual sin, the immorality, all the wickedness, all the ungodliness of his people was placed on Christ. It means that every rape, every injustice, every family abuse, every evil thought or deed ever committed By those who would be redeemed was placed on Christ. Can you imagine that all our sins, even those sins that those respectable sins we'll call them, have nailed Christ to the cross? Can you can you imagine how much this must have repulsed His His holy soul? Here is a man who cannot sin. He was born without a sinful nature. Okay, he didn't have a sinful nature. And he had no desire for or impulse to commit sin, ever. He is a man who is accustomed to holiness and to righteousness. Now all the sins of the bride are placed on him. Can you imagine the agony that he would have gone through? The spiritual agony Jesus endured that day far outweighed any physical torment that he might have suffered. That's a big statement. Look at the physical suffering he went through. And now he's got this spiritual agony. When the transaction was made on the cross, God the Father focused all of his wrath against sin on his son. God judged him as if he were a sinner, bearing the sins of all those who would come to him. At that moment of time, Jesus suffered the greatest agony of hell itself. He suffered separation from the presence of his father. And by the way, the greatest pain of hell won't be the fire. It won't be the thirst or the gnashing of teeth. The greatest agony of hell will be the eternal separation from almighty God. So Jesus went to the cross. He went there to satisfy God. Jesus died because the wages of sin is death. Jesus died because the only way that we could ever be free was for an innocent man to give his life in our place. And that's what Jesus did. He took our sins upon himself and he was judged in our place. He died satisfying the holy justice of God. And that is why the Bible says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. At about 3pm, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. In love, he has drained the cup Of his father's wrath, to the dregs. There is he has borne our full curse. There is no more debt left for him to pay, and he has nothing left to give. John nineteen thirty says, when Jesus had received the drink, he said, "It is finished." With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I kind of like Luke's the way Luke covers that part. Luke 23, 46. It says, Jesus says this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, it's rather interesting here. I don't know what the time frame is. Just a note. You can check it out yourselves. God at the same hour, Jesus said at the same hour, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we're still talking in the same hour. Now he's saying, Father. So you work that out. So there's two. there's two cries there. My God, which is the God of judgment, power and authority. This one here, Father, is Abba Father, a very loving, it's like a little child going to his daddy and, and, and saying, Daddy. This is what Jesus is saying now to, to the Father. So in that time frame, and no one knows what it is, there's a time frame there that's changed and maybe the wrath has been of God has been satisfied in that time frame. Hard to know how long that time frame is because it's always talking about the three o'clock. So I don't know what it is, but it's interesting, don't I reckon? So, so, it is the worst and best of all human deaths, for on this tree he bears our sins in his body, 1 Peter 4, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's what he did it for, that he might bring us to God. And Jesus said, now it is finished. The death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary was the ultimate expression of God's love for the lost. Jesus Christ died in physical and spiritual agony to save his people from their sins. He did it because he did not do it because we deserved it, but because he loved us, he did it because we could not save ourselves. In conclusion now, yeah, small. So, right. in conclusion, the glory of the cross is seen in the very fact that Jesus goes there. You know, that's that's what it is, isn't it? The very fact that Jesus goes to the cross is the glory of the cross. Three observations. He goes there willingly, he goes there savingly, and he goes there obediently. Verse 1, Jesus goes there willingly. Now, if you want to turn your Bibles to Galatians 1.4 again, it's going to run off those few verses, that one verse, but just have a look at that one verse, okay? Jesus goes there willingly. Jesus, in all this, was not a helpless victim. I think some people think that, but he's not. As Jesus says in 10, John ten seventeen, the reason my Father loves me is that I laid down my life. I'll need to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. This command I received from my Father. And Jesus also could have saved himself if he wanted to. In Matthew 26 we read, If I call on my Father, He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels which would have completely destroyed the Jews and the Romans. So this guy has willingly done this for you, for us. He could have saved himself, you know, but he didn't. He goes there savingly. Why did Jesus go to the cross? The answer is found in Galatians again. Jesus gave Himself the reason He gave Himself for our sin to rescue us from the present evil age. When Jesus died on the cross, everything sinful and rotten in us was imputed. If you like that word, I like that word, I like those kind of words, imputed. And I'm not an academic, so everyone can understand this word imputed if you just wanted to. But it means put to your account or charge to charged to Christ. Everything that was rotten in us was charged to Christ or imputed to Christ. You guys probably know the word anyway. And everything that is lacking in us for salvation was given to us in Christ. So this is what theologians call the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin and we are given his righteousness. So what we have in the cross is the appleasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. And here God determines how it will be that sinful people like us will be declared righteous in his presence and that is only through the righteousness of Christ. But he goes there obediently. Now Jesus is in trouble in his soul. If we go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, okay, he prays to his father in Luke. 22.43 Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me Yet not my will, but yours be done If you are willing, take this cup from me Because Jesus knows what's in store He knows what it's going to be like to have the scratch rip his back open And he knows what it's going to be like to be crucified And he knows that he's going to be separated from his father So he's wanting this cup to be removed from him if he can If it's the Lord's will and as you read a little bit on from Luke Luke 22 to 44, it says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So he knew what he was due, what was going to happen, and that's how he felt about it. This would have to be, in my opinion only, the greatest prayer in the history of the world, don't you think? The the salvation of mankind is held in the balance here with this prayer. If Jesus doesn't drink the cup of God's wrath, okay, there is no salvation for mankind. And the devil wins. The devil's up there already clapping his hands. He's thinking he's winning the devil. He's got all these martial, all these forces from Jerusalem and all the Roman soldiers and everyone else in the crowd. He's having a ball. He thinks he's on the winning track here, yeah? But Jesus doesn't drink the cup of God's wrath, because it is God's will for him to suffer. No greater love, no greater humility or obedience has ever or ever will be displayed again for what Christ went through. No greater love, we look at that in John 15:13. His humility, we see that in Philippians where he's take upon human nature. Philippians 2.8, and his obedience to the point of death, which is in Hebrews 5.8. So he goes there obediently according to the will of the Father. Yet it was the God's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. But the sovereign God was calling the tune in all this that was going on. The God in the great mystery of his electing love would would fashion a plan from all eternity whereby rebellious people Like you and me could be brought back into a loving relationship with him, even though we are guilty sinners. Sinners. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and his enemies are doing just as God had and planned and predestined them to take place. Greater love has no man than this, no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends even when they have forsaken him. Thank you very much for listening. Amen.